Hello, friends. This episode of the Paw and Order podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Animal Stone. Animal Stone connects people to animals through solid sterling silver and solid 14 karat gold animal charms. Browse the full collection at animalstone.com to find your favorite animal and use code PAWS10 for 10% off your order. Proceeds from the sale of 10 animals goes back to wildlife conservation. This episode is also brought to you by Elemento, an online market filled with Canadian organic and natural goods. Choose from hundreds of sustainable and plant-based products at Elemento.com and have them delivered straight to your door. Shopping for delicious, nutritious, and organic plant-based foods has never been easier. Use code PAUSE15 to receive 15% off your next order. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O.com. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw & Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system. Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 65 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm your host, Camille Labchuk, and I'm jo joined by one of my co-hosts today, Jessica Scott-Reed. Hi, he Jessica. Hello, Camille. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's a short work week after Thanksgiving, so that's always kind of exciting. Yes, it's Wednesday And I'm really already. excited for this episode in particular and your interview with um, Nick Carter about some cool issues, including that film, Kiss the Ground. Yes, this has been uh, such a hot topic over the last couple of weeks since the film was released on Netflix. Um, there's been so much discussion online, uh, and I'm really excited to hear more about what he has to say about it. Yeah, it's a, I watched it the other week and I was, it had been recommended to me by a bunch of vegans. Like people were emailing and saying, oh, it's so great. You got to watch it. And so I was excited for it. And then I started watching it and like, you know, it makes really good points about soil depletion and how we should be concerned about that. But then it seems to just head in this direction of like, oh, the solution to all of our problems is to uh, raise cows for food in free range situations and it was like oh this is not what I expected yeah I think um I think it was plant-based news or was it or was it veg news one of the one of the vegan publications promoted the film and I think that confused a lot of people it got a lot of vegans kind of on board Woody Harrelson narrates it which I think confused a lot of people but, but then, you know, suddenly when they start presenting cows as the silver bullet to all of our climate problems, I yeah, I was very disappointed. And so Nick and I worked together on a piece for uh, Planet Friendly News that just came out. And uh, I'm excited to talk to him even further because, you know, putting in writing is, is one thing, but to, a discussion will be great. Well, I'm glad. I'm very excited for this interview. Can't wait to hear it. And uh, before we get to that, though, always lots to catch up on, as usual, Jess. So how was your Thanksgiving weekend? Well, you know, Thanksgiving in the time of COVID, uh, it's, it was a little different, that's for sure. It was just my daughter and I. We we decided to, um, with all of our family, to all stay apart, to be safe and smart. So it's just my daughter Clover and I, and I made my little stuffed pumpkins instead of a turkey, of course. So little mini pumpkins stuffed with wild rice and cranberries and pecans, and of course, course beyond sausage uh, so they were delicious of course and of course pumpkin pie i love the um minimalist baker recipe i usually use that one and it was still delicious and we were still very thankful to be with each other how about you Wow, that sounds really good. Yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, Thanksgiving's always about the food. I, I'm really conflicted about it as a, as a holiday, obviously, because of all the turkey slaughter that goes on. Yes. And that's pretty awful. And then, of course, because it's so hurtful to so many Indigenous people who are still grappling with the really serious effects of colonization. And I like to try to think of this as a holiday that, uh, at least for me personally, I do what I can to deconstruct um, 
post-colonialism, mm-hmm. um, including avoiding eating products of factory farming. So <laughs> it was uh, it was a, a good meal of Thanksgiving this year, as, as, you, as it usually is, because there's so many great things to make as a vegan. So many. But we actually ordered uh, food from Yam Chops, the, the Toronto oh. vegan butcher store. And um, I wasn't sure what to expect, but it was so good. So they had this like roast kind of thing. It was a seitan-y roast and wow. it was wrapped in like beet bacon. I put that in air quotes. Wow. Um, with a string around it. So it had this like total roast vibe and potatoes and carrots that were just roasted per- to perfection. Wow. Delicious soup and a little pumpkin pie dessert. So sounds yeah, amazing. Not too much to complain about. No kidding. That sounds great. Yeah. Vegan Thanksgiving. There's so much potential. I feel like being able to cook for vegan Thanksgiving, I've done a few different things over the years. It's great just to be able to move away from the same generic giant dead bird on the table. Like I've created so many more variety of foods to eat as traditional foods. And, and I think being vegan is kind of, it helps you do that. I totally agree. It just gives you a chance to delve into all these new cool recipes. And mm-hmm. there's so many cool ones out there. I know I'm always jealous of your um, mushroom Wellington, which I know yes. you make usually for holidays. Usually, see if, if we had a big group, that's what we would normally do from Bosch. They have an amazing uh, mushroom Wellington and I make that for every holiday. But for just my daughter and I, that would have been a lot of food. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So good. Well, then the other cool thing I did over the weekend, the long weekend, is I went to a sanctuary. I went to Glow Farm Sanctuary, which stands for Green Living Organic Farm Sanctuary. And it's kind of near Guelph slash Fergus in Ontario. So Mm -hmm. only about an hour and a half out of the city. And it was really cool. Uh, They have just like an amazing setup. They really prioritize the preventative care of animals. So trying to head off problems before they start. Ah, good. Um, a lot of really cool cows, so many pigs. The pigs were like amazing. They're all pot bellies. And there was one pig who was only 12 weeks old. <laughs> she was just like precious. I think I saw it on your Instagram, too. right? You were posting a lot from, from the sanctuary that day. Yeah, yeah. So I did a big cute. long story of, of everything from it. So that was... That was really cool. And I actually made it to another sanctuary the previous weekend, Black Goat Farm Sanctuary. I'm just kind of like doing this sanctuary tour of Southern Ontario, which oh, is a pretty great. good COVID activity because you can be outside. To, that's very you know, true. Distance easily. That's very true. Yeah. A good outdoor activity. And before it gets super cold, that's what everybody should spend the fall doing. Just jumping around sanctuaries, making donations and hanging out with animals. I think you're onto something. I like this strategy. And then the cool thing about Black Goat Farm Sanctuary, I mean, they've got a lot of really amazing residents who live there, amazing animals. Most of them rescued from factory farm situations of of horrific abuse and neglect. And just there was this one turkey. So he's a chick. He fell off the truck, like, probably just days before I was there. And um, I don't think I'd seen a turkey chick before, but he looked just identical to a chicken chick. I wouldn't have known the difference. Yeah, I saw. And then um, Megan, one of the operators of the sanctuary, it's Megan and her husband, Mike, um, she explained, and I I didn't really know as much about this as as I do now, but um, she showed his little feet, and I posted a story or a a wall post on my Instagram if anyone wants to go check it out with a a turkey. And then if you swipe through, the next picture is this little chick. They um, rescued him and found out that his toes had been sliced off, probably with like infrared or microwave or heat um, mechanism of toe removal, because they do this to chicks so that they don't grow up to be um, larger birds who could potentially scratch each other with the toes, which they're meant to have. Oh, goodness gracious. it was awful to see. And the poor little guy, like you could tell that he was uncomfortable and in pain because he kept trying not to put his feet down and like would lift one up all the time. And it was just like, oh. So, so is this a, is this a standard farming practice in Canada? This is something I, I haven't really heard of before. Yeah, it is. I, I hadn't so much either thought about it and haven't worked on turkey issues as much, but it is standard. Um, you know, if turkeys are confined in like a, a large windowless warehouse, which is where they're raised for a number of weeks before they kill them, obviously at a certain point they get pretty big. Um, there's not a lot of space. They're crowded in together. And so they may scratch each other, not even intentionally, just trying to climb on top of each other mm-hmm. to survive and get food. And this, of course, could affect the quality of the meat, which is what farmers mostly care about. Right. So um, could reduce the grade of the carcass if it has scratches all over it. So they slice off their toes. And it's just wow. like, oh, my God. Just well, when you think you know everything that they do to animals, you learn something new. Well, that's animal agriculture in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, still still a fun and educational trip, and, and really, it's always rejuvenating to spend some time with some nice animals who made it out alive. That's very true. Yeah. 
All right, Jess. Well, another reason it's been a big week is because we launched our annual Voiceless for Animal Justice crowdfundraising campaign this week, or we announced that's launching. So I don't know if uh, you folks listening have taken part in it before. I'm sure some of you have, but it's a super fun three-week fundraising campaign that empowers our supporters to raise funds on behalf of animal justice. So it culminates in, so it's three weeks. You can set up your own page to raise funds and solicit donations from your friends and your family on a website that we have. And at the end of it, participants take a 24-hour vow of silence. So going quiet for 24 hours to represent and to honor the animals whose voices are silenced. Mm-hmm. And this year, Jessa has kind of a special meaning because it's it's um, the campaign is aimed at uh, raising funds to help us challenge egg gag laws in Canada and prevent the spread of new ones. And of course, the point of egg gag laws is to silence animals and silence advocates. So it has, I think, special symbolism this oh, year. Oh yeah, that's extra meaningful for sure. And how many years has this been going on, Camille, the, uh, this campaign? You've been doing it for a few years now, right? Yeah, we've done it twice already, so this is going to be year three. And, um, you know, if you want to get involved, just go to animaljustice.ca. There's a, a web banner you can click on to learn more information. But it's always super fun, and it's also a great chance to educate your friends and family about some of the issues in animal agriculture and animal rights more generally, because, um, you know, going silent and explaining why gives them an opportunity to ask you more and, and for you to tell them. So Yeah, that's a great it's, idea. It's always really fun. Good idea. Yeah. So check it out if you want to sign up just to stay in touch with the campaign at this point. Uh, you guys can definitely do that. And in a few weeks, we'll officially launch it and then people can start uh, fundraising. And we've also got really cool prizes oh, good. for the people people and teams who, who raise the most um, money and they're able to show that uh, level of support. So fun times all around. Oh, that's great. Good, uh, good initiative. And what about um, what about the conference? That's still going on too, right? Yeah, that's right. So glad you brought that up where uh, the conference, of course, was took place in September, but all of the sessions are still online and you can sign up still to watch those sessions at a reduced rate. So it's only $100 now for general admission for, um, you know, I'm not even sure how many hours of sessions there would be, but like dozens and dozens of hours. Yeah, uh, it's for a sure. lot. It's yeah, amazing I'm, content. If anybody hasn't uh, hasn't participated in the Canadian Animal Law Conference yet, uh, thankfully this year, because of the virtual platform, this is allowed to happen. I mean, if we all went last year to the one in person, this obviously wasn't an option and now it is. So if you haven't taken advantage, I totally recommend it. It was super enlightening. Um, there's actually a few more uh, sessions I'd like to partake in too that I wasn't able to do live. So I might hop on there and, and take in a few as well. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I haven't even managed to get through them all yet because there's just so much great stuff. Whether yeah. you're interested in farmed animals, animals decent entertainment, there's a great Tiger King panel, um, you know, fish farms, you name it, non-human rights project, legal personhood, uh, which just runs the gamut of all the cool topics that you might want to hear about. Yeah, so check it such out. great stuff. All right. And uh, another reminder, folks, that if you're listening to the podcast and you like Pawn Order, that you can help us out and help us reach more people by leaving us a review. So if you visit Apple Podcasts, you can add to our over 100 five-star reviews. It always makes us happy when we see a new one. And it really does make a difference, too, because the more reviews that we have, the more... um, the algorithm will bump up the podcast in people's search engines and the more it will push it out to people. So it makes a difference and it helps more people find the podcast. And the second way you can support us is joining our Patreon community. You can do this for as little as a dollar a month. And if you become a a Patreon supporter, we also offer pretty cool regular prizes for our patrons. And, uh, you know, things like merchandise and discounts on, on those types of things. And, of course, you will get our undying gratitude for help making this uh, every two weeks a possibility and bringing it to people across the country and around the world. Yep. Gotta do it. Please be our patron. <laughs> Join us. All right, folks. So, Jess, we've got, as always, lots of stuff in the news today. Uh, I thought we could start by talking about this really impressive two-part investigative series that aired on CBC's The National over Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, it was a great it scoop. focused on. Yeah, yeah, I was just blown away by the quality of investigation that they did. Yeah, it was. Um, and, I, I was impressed just that they were able to get this type of information. It's not even something, you know, me as as a media person who's always kind of after these kinds of stories. It's not even something that I considered. Uh, so why don't you tell them exactly what this great scoop was? Great, but very disturbing. 
Very disturbing indeed, and and um, a hot topic for sure right now during the pandemic. So the story was about dog breeding and dog purchases specifically, and focused on how so many dogs and so many puppies come from puppy mills, and especially animals who are being shipped into Canada. Now, of course, Jess, everyone listening to this podcast, you couldn't have escaped the news over the summer that a shipment of dogs arrived from the Ukraine to Toronto Pearson Airport. Um, I think close to 500 dogs uh, were dead in that shipment because of conditions during transport, which was just awful. And so it got a lot of people asking, where do these puppies come from? Yeah, it turns out that, you know, so many of them were coming from Eastern Europe. We heard about in that story. And then eventually we're we're finding out kind of as we we unravel the yarn that there are a lot of these breeders that are bringing them in and they are being registered as if they are. Um, actual breeders in Canada and somehow there's no actual uh, vetting process for anybody that that just signs up as a breeder in Canada isn't that incredible it was astounding so yeah the, the Canadian Kennel Club sort of acts as this like industry-friendly, like industry-tied body for dog breeders. It sort of promotes their interests and it does create these, uh, you know, codes of practice that are a lot like the NFAT codes of practice that I complain about all the time. And it also kind of has this breeder tracking mechanism, not so much tracking and monitoring as an oversight, but it's a way for people to find breeders and they're supposed to be quote unquote reputable breeders of dogs, which I've got a big problem with that term in the first place because I'm not sure how you can reputably breed dogs into a world where there's more than enough adoptable, wonderful animals at shelters and rescues. Yeah, it is an oxymoron for those of us who know, right? But the fact that this Canadian Kennel Club, people who think they are seeking an act Actual, reputable quote breeder think that there's some kind of standards that are included in to be included on this list and it turns out there really aren't no i don't think people generally realize i mean i didn't even realize until i, I started doing this work that dog breeding is just not regulated in canada i mean it, that's not completely true because a couple of provinces have some very minimal standards but in general like there's really not much of a tracking and oversight mechanism to assure the conditions that dogs are being bred in yeah, so it actually turns out that, so how is this working? That there's actually middlemen that are bringing in these an, these animals from different parts of the world uh, and then pretending as if they were bred in Canada. Yeah, definitely. There, there, there's some falsification of records alleged in some of the CBC stories. And of course, we'll, we'll post links to these so you can check them out yourself. Uh, but they had some pretty heartbreaking interviews with people who have purchased dogs And as we know, because of the pandemic, most of us have more time to spend at home right now. And so there has been a large spike in in people trying to adopt or purchase dogs and other companion animals. Uh, And of course, the tragic downside of that is that people think they're doing a good thing by buying a dog on Kijiji or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, really what they're doing is contributing to the, the puppy mill market and to breeders that keep dogs in pretty poor conditions. So a lot of these folks have realized the problems with this firsthand because they um, have purchased animals who later turned out to have health problems, and that could be brought on by poor breeding conditions, or it could just be an inherent feature of dog breeding because so many breeds are just grown to um, just distorted sort of proportions based on breed standards, which of course is bad for the dogs. Yeah, and I think this also talks to the idea of of this popularity of wanting certain types of purebred dogs you know in the story they talk a lot about french bulldogs which seem to be kind of the dog of our time right now and those dogs inherently come with specific health issues uh, just because they've been so overbred over time uh, but generally i think this is all telling us just a reminder of how important it is to adopt not shop like you said we already have so many dogs in canada needing homes uh, that to be buying from breeders and especially breeders importing them you know without without good intentions um, from overseas. Uh, there's a lot to be learned from this story. Definitely. And it's just really great to see it getting airtime in the national. And I, I hope it's going to induce some more people to think about this more critically, because I still know tons of people who are self-professed animal lovers and get their dogs from breeders. And, you know, I, I appreciate that they want to care for an animal and they think that it's um, a good thing. But, you know, ultimately, there's there's so many amazing dogs out there at rescues. Um, I, and I will say this, and I'd be curious to, 
think to hear what you think about this as well, Jess. But I know lots of people have told me that there's a shortage of animals right now in rescues and uh, shelters in Canada, which is a good thing. It's a super happy problem because it means that people are adopting them. Um, and so then their solution is to go to a breeder because they just can't find that type of dog or any dog at a shelter. And um, again, I think this is a happy problem, but I think the solution is not to go back to a breeder. It's to work with rescues that bring dogs from overseas. And there's a lot of them. Um, a lot of places do bring dogs from Israel, from Thailand, from um, South Korea, from the dog meat trade. There, there's Mexico, um, all kinds of different places. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I also think there's something about um, just waiting, you know, so I'm personally on the hunt for a rescue dog right now, um, as well as my good friend John Rush, as you all know, the vegan blue bomber from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers here. And the two of us have sort of been working together, you know, scouring through Pet Finder and our local Winnipeg Humane Society websites. And it really seems that as soon as there's a dog you have interested in, you make an appointment to go see, because now because of COVID, you have to make an appointment. Um, they get scooped up really quick, which is great to see. So there's some patience involved. And I do have some friends or people that I know who wanted to adopt a dog during this time uh, and had the same issue that they couldn't uh, get in quick enough to, to get a dog or you to even to meet a dog before they were adopted because so many people are doing it. Again, a very happy problem. Uh, but just be patient. Uh, sadly, there seems to be an ever-ending stream of them. Uh, you just have to be, be patient and wait. I don't think that the go-to move is to then go to a breeder. The other thing too is that um, these rescues that do bring in dogs from other countries, um, which is a, also a popular way of adopting dogs if you live in Europe, um, which I've written about in the past, places like Scandinavia, Germany, not a lot of these places have uh, a lot of uh, dogs in need or homeless dogs. So they bring them in from other countries, again, in Eastern Europe or Southern Europe. Uh, so it's a common thing. But right now, because of COVID, the importing of rescue dogs, ironically enough, seems to be more difficult, even though these breeders seem to be able to do it, um, specifically the ones that drive down to the U.S. Uh, here in Winnipeg, we have a group that does that, that goes down to the U.S. and brings up um, smaller rescue dogs and then rest and then adopts them out here. They're not able to do that right now. So um, I, I do see that there's stumbling block blocks along the way, but just be patient and going to a breeder is not the answer. Every dog you buy from a breeder, you're leaving a dog in a shelter ultimately yeah that's that's ultimately it you're um you know you're taking the life away of a super adoptable dog who would have made someone be very happy so you know just think about that if you're considering adding an animal to your family right now okay well another cbc story i wanted to talk about is uh, a story out of um, edmonton um, about a man who was convicted i think he pled guilty to um, drowning his girlfriend's two pet cats in the bathtub Ugh. and abusing another cat. And he was sentenced to two years in jail, uh, the Edmonton Court of Queen's Bench. So obviously a heartbreaking story. I don't want to get into the facts too much, Jess, because I, you know, I just yeah. hear these stories and they're, they're heartbreaking. They're it's awful, a disturbing, but... disturbing story. Yeah, a very disturbing story. We'll, we'll post the link if you feel like you really need to read it. But he apparently had some mental health issues. Um he pled guilty. He agreed with the Crown's suggestion that he should serve two years in prison and never interact with animals again. So my understanding is that there's now a permanent lifetime prohibition order on him having or interacting with animals. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I it, it's you know it's, it's it's obviously really sad. So um, a couple things that I thought were interesting about this case that I thought were worth discussing. First of all, I mean, the long sentence. You folks, if you listen to this podcast, you kind of know where I stand on long sentences. I don't think that they're particularly helpful in terms of preventing animal cruelty in the future and addressing cruelty that has occurred. Um, they're uh, a form of ret retribution, but I don't think that they advance animals' interests substantially. So I've always been a little bit critical from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I found very frustrating about this case, and I think it's appropriate that that he was handed a, a ban on owning cats in the future, but or any animals in the future. But I was frustrated to see that the judge urged him to seek help upon his release. Um, obviously, you know, he should seek help upon his release. But why is it that he has to wait until he's released? Uh, to me, Jess, it's just mind-blowing that we actually don't have structures in place to support people who've been in these animal abuse situations, especially one involving a domestic dispute, which I think raises all kinds of other issues about intersectionality of harm. Yep. And, um, you know, domestic abuse for sure. Um, so I'm, I'm frustrated by this in that 
this guy admits he needs help. He says that he wants to seek help. He's acknowledging his crimes, which I think is a good step towards trying to improve oneself. But there's actually no programming for him, apparently, in jail that he can access. Yeah, they just told him to that they suggest that he seeks help upon release, like you said. And I mean, how much more proof do we need to know also that, um, you know, animal abuse, especially of this nature, so often is the precursor to abuse of humans. Um, and this guy's quoted in the article as saying, I'm a small, angry, passive aggressive man who believes in physical punishment. And I would like to change that. The guy obviously, as stated, has very various mental health issues. He's recognizing that he wants the help. And you're right. They're not offering him anything. No, it's, it's just really frustrating that here's somebody who wants to improve himself and who recognizes a problem and he's being just like put in, in jail. Um, you know, jail's an awful place. It's proven to increase recidivism. Right. So people who go to jail are more likely to commit offenses in the future. I'm not sure it's saying that there shouldn't be accountability, but to me, it's just frustrating that we don't have a better mechanism set up to help people in this position. Now, obviously, this is not specific to animals. This cuts across so many aspects yeah. of our criminal justice system, which is severely broken. We have this emphasis on punishment, but very little programming and resources and help available for people who want to improve their lives, or even if they don't want to improve their lives, just people who need help. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to, to point out about this story. Yeah, and I think, you know, if we could, as in a sense, cut things off at a pass, right? If, if you're dealing with, um, often we see children engaging in uh, animal cruelty, and this is, you know, when you look at cases of, say, serial killers in the future, or, or um, school shooters, mass shooters, so many of them have these types of animal torture things in their past. And there's, there's so much academic literature out there that talks about how if these things had been cut off at, at a point in their childhood or in their younger years, that horrific things could be avoided. So there's a lot to be said for um, how this could benefit society if these people got the, the type of help they required. Yeah, instead of a, a lengthy jail sentence, what kind of other intervention could get in there and improve this guy's life and improve life for animals as well? So, And potential we'll future victims. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, next story. So we talk a lot about this podcast about labeling issues. Every time they come up, I think that we um, we focus on them. So we've, we've been particularly concerned about U.S. laws going kind of state by state that discriminate against plant-based products and prevent them from using common terms for marketing meat, meat-like foods like burger or hot dog. So this story is so interesting, Jess. It's um, a story out of Louisiana. So Louisiana... Uh, passed a law which became effective on t October 1st that um, you as a producer can't market or sell products with terms like burger and sausage unless you're selling flesh from flesh from slaughtered animals. Oh my goodness. I mean, how many times have we been through this already, right? Like this, it's such a silly argument. Um, it's, it's a waste of time, I think, a, a waste of, of, you know, legal time. And and it's silly. It just screams to me desperation and fear. Like consumers are not confused, right? They're not. There's nothing to have shown that somebody accidentally buys a veggie burger and didn't realize that that's what they were buying. So the basis for these arguments are so silly to me. <laughs> Oh, truly silly. I mean, there's been all kinds of polls and like research and surveys done on people's attitudes and no one's confused by this. No. <laughs> they, they, they choose animal-free products because they want to choose those products, not because they're being duped into it. So right. um, as... Well, the, the cool part of this story is not that the law passed, but actually that Tofurky, along with the Animal Legal Defense Fund and Good Food Institute in the States, are suing Louisiana over this um, this absurd law and making a First Amendment claim. So that's a free speech yep. claim. And I think in Canada, the issues would play out very similarly. Uh, but they're saying it's a, unconstitutional to tell people how they can describe a product like this, which is pretty cool. Yeah, what a great team. I'm so glad to see them all uh, pairing up. Way to go, Tofurky, for taking this on. Uh, I think it's so great to see companies, corporations doing things like this to, to make the the space of, of plant-based products or whatever uh, so much better because otherwise they would just get run over and we'd have things like veggie, di veggie discs and, and what did they want? Like plant-based tubes or something? That's what they wanted yeah. them to be calling them. <laughs> 
Yeah, vegan tubes instead of right. vegan hot dogs vegan or tubes. veggie pucks instead yeah. of veggie burger. Like, how appetizing is that? A puck or a tube? No, thank you. Oh, that's so funny. I actually wrote about this for the uh, Toronto Star in one of their big debate pieces last year. Uh, it was me against, uh, who was it? The guy from, um, he was a meat guy. Oh yeah, oh, Chris was that the White. Pig farmer? No, no, Chris White from the Canadian Meat Council. Uh, he did he did the the no side whether or not plant based food should use the word meat. Uh, and in the article, I actually cite Carol J. Adams, which I'm sure many of uh, our listeners know, the author and activist Carol J. Adams. She wrote a really great piece the year before for the New York Times uh, entitled "There's Nothing More American Than the Veggie Burger," and she talks about a lot about how the history of the hamburger actually starts in plant-based foods. I'll just read a portion of it. Uh, The New York Times article, she says, the hamburger has always been about efficiency, deliciousness, and innovation. And this is what plant-based patties are now. If we think of the hamburger as a single portion protein patty and you locate its predecessors, not in the ground horse meat of the conquering tartars, but in falafel, nut cutlets, veggie croquettes, and millennium old Indian fried protein rich lentil or bean patties. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about patties, right? No, gets to own patties no that's just not how food works and how the evolution of taste and culture and all those things work it's just yeah anyway one of the one of the sponsors of the bill representative francis thomas he admitted that he designed the law to protect certain louisiana agricultural producers i.e meat farmers Mm -hmm. from competition from plant-based meats riced vegetables and meat grown directly from animal cells like cultivated or cultured meats so you know i think on the bright side this is the dying gasps of an industry that's so desperate to protect itself that it's trying to control people's speech to do so oh i hope i hope that tofurkey wins (laughs) go tofurkey (laughs) go tofurkey woo Uh, All right. Well, and in other news, we wanted to highlight something kind of cool. There's a special issue of the Journal of Food Law and Policy out this this period of time. Yeah, I I think I had sent this to you, right? And it was um, the University of Arkansas has a new issue of the Journal of Food Law and Policy considers legal questions related to milk. Woo! Yeah, pretty cool. And there's actually a number of Canadians writing in this in this um, in this journal. So there's Jessica Eisen from the University of Alberta. She's written a piece called Dairy Tales, Global Portraits of Milk and Law that situates the theme of drinking cow's milk within the context of law and colonialism and gender studies, which is cool. Yeah. There's Manisha Deka out of the University of Victoria. She's She talks about the really cool fight to demote dairy in Canada's National Food Guide. Yeah, I think that was a big There's, catalyst for a lot of research on milk in Canada in general was how dairy was removed from the food guide as a, as a food category. Yeah, yeah, it was it was just such a great flashpoint and like a real cool story to illustrate the decline of dairy and mm-hmm. I think drew a lot of attention to it. And there's also Kelly Struthers-Montford, who's a professor of criminology at Ryerson University, who's, who's great. And she's, again, writing about milk and law in the Anthropocene, colonialism's dietary interventions. Wow. And um, she talks about recent legislative attempts to stop non-dairy products from being mm-hmm. labeled as milk. So back to our last story mm-hmm. again. And uh, the links there between the colonial imposition of dairy-based diets and suppression of indigenous people in North America. So pretty cool stuff. Wow, I got got to get reading. Animal Stone is a Toronto-based, family-owned, women-run business specializing in handmade, solid sterling silver and solid 14-karat gold animal charms. Animal Stone was founded on the principle that humans, animals, and nature must exist harmoniously together to conserve our shared place on planet Earth. Animal Stone believes the joy that animals bring to our lives is an essential component to our ecological systems, so that together we must celebrate and respect their majesty. With the help of in-house designer and goldsmith Delane Cooper, over 40 3D animals have been brought to life, complete with a birth story, name, and personality reflective of the animal as it is in the wild. Animal Stone is a team of animal lovers and eco-warriors who celebrate the beauty of the natural world while encapsulating this love for wildlife within the miniature bodies that are their Animal Stone charms. 
Animal Stone's mantra is connecting animals to people, and they have partnered nine of their animal charms up with local and global wildlife organizations to make a difference through rescue, conservation, education, habitat protection, and research. Check out AnimalStone.com to learn more and use code PAUSE10 for 10% off your order today. Looking for all the basics for your pantry, but you want Canadian organic and natural brands that believe in animal compassion and sustainable eating? Well, Elemento is the Canadian-owned online food market you've been looking for. It carries Canadian brands such as Everland, New World, and their brand new Bliss Balls, which I have tried, and I can tell you, they are delicious. Elemento believes that everyone deserves a kitchen packed with nutrient-rich, organic, and plant-based foods. Get any of their hundreds of products delivered to your door at elemento.com. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-T-O.com. Or find endless numbers about recipes and sustainability tips on social media at at Elemento Market. Use code PAUSE15 to receive 15% off your next order. And I'm going to suggest you get their chocolate cashews. Again, I had some of those. They were delicious. And so now for our main topic, um, I sit down with environmental researcher Nick Carter, a Canadian-based researcher that I work a lot with. He's sort of my go-to guy for um, issues regarding regenerative agriculture, veganic agriculture, climate change. Uh, We get into a lot of Twitter debates together. We are on the same team. Uh, And this is what he had to say about the Kiss the Ground documentary, as well as regenerative agriculture as a whole and cows being positioned as the saviors of the climate. Uh, So this is my chat with Nick Carter. All right, uh, Pawn Order listeners, I am so happy to be sitting down with uh, environmental researcher for plantbaseddata.org, Nicholas Carter. Uh, Nicholas and I have worked a lot together on projects in the past, and I'm really excited to be sitting down with you to talk specifically about the new documentary, Kiss the Ground, and about regenerative agriculture as a whole. Uh, So welcome to the Pond Order Podcast, and why don't you start off by telling us, uh, maybe for some listeners who haven't seen the film, maybe just a little basic premise of the film and how it relates to sort of regenerative agriculture as a whole. Sure, well first, really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, So Kiss the Ground, the general thesis is that if you improve farmland as a whole, Uh, This can be a cure for climate change. This can uh, improve the soil. Uh, That's the whole idea behind Kiss the Ground is is all about the soil. Um, And they do this by telling stories of different farmers across the world. Um, They do this with kind of great cinematography and and a good story overall. And um, as you can imagine, there's, you know, a lot to be said about it. There's a lot to get into. There's very little science they actually show in the movie. Um, which mm-hmm. I think is a, one of the major issues. And it's not like they couldn't have found some. There is science in this area that would somewhat support some things they're saying. Uh, but they went with more of the storytelling theme. And uh, and yeah, a lot of the stories they're telling aren't backed by much evidence at all. Yeah, they use a lot of sort of celebrity um, input. Uh, Woody Harrelson narrates. Um and I found that to be, you know, probably intriguing for a, a mass audience, which, you know, on a Netflix platform makes sense. But when it comes to something as important as climate change and, and the claims that they're making, uh, you'd probably want to see more science and less celebrity. So the thing that a lot of us had found concerning and that um, I wrote about alongside with you uh, after your um, appearance on the Plant Proof podcast um, was their, their focus on cows and holistic grazing, grass-fed beef as sort of the cure for climate change. So are cows the cure to climate change? No, absolutely not. I mean, so there's so many things to to discuss here. I I guess there's two glaring omissions from the movie that need to be understood off the bat. And that's the amount of land we already use for grazing cattle, uh, the amount of land used for agriculture, and what the impact on that land is from, you know, domesticated animals right now. So to, it, it doesn't mention any of that, really. It does mention a little bit to do with like feed crops in the movie. But uh, in terms of grazing cattle across the globe, they use 25 to 33 percent of all habitable land. So that's a huge amount. And this is despite 
the majority of them are still in feedlots, right? They're in factory farms. Uh, so this is not really how people are even getting uh, beef and burgers today. It's not typically from from grass finished uh, cows. Typically, it's from you know feedlot intensively uh, produced uh, cows. So once we understand that overall they they use most of agricultural land, then we need to understand what they're pitching here. And what they're pitching is to put more cows on pasture land, do it a bit differently, mind you, but uh, they don't mention really anything at all about reducing the amount of beef consumed and the amount of you know animal source foods consumed. And, and that's, really, that's really what the research is telling us, right? That reducing land usage of agriculture and reducing, and in turn, reducing the amount of animal products we consume in order to do that, uh, in, in the work we've done together, the research really points to that as sort of the most important or more important than this idea of cows. Because in, in the film and much of what Kiss the Ground discusses is what cows can do. So what is it that they say cows are able to do specifically to be helpful? So what they're saying is it's all to do with regenerative agriculture. And as a whole, what regenerative agriculture has come to be defined as is a combination of organic farming, a combination of holistic grazing which would be just a a type of grazing pioneered by someone called alan savory which we can we can get into um <laughs> and then uh conservation so you know some aspects of that i'm totally on board with like i'm i'm totally on board with co the conservation messages uh organic farming while there's some nuance to that while it um it you know it's not as clear-cut of a solution there is many good forms of organic farming and the, the large part of the movie was about holistic grazing and mm -hmm. the ways in which we uh, we should be uh, grazing cattle across the world. And, uh, and they're, they're really specifically talking about how the cows um, draw down carbon into the soil and how, you know, them pooping on the land is so beneficial to the soil. They really look to cows as if they're the cure and the silver bullet and everything. But you know, the, the work that you've done has really shown that there's so much more to regenerative agriculture than cows. And in fact, like we've mentioned, that the, this, this idea of using more cows would actually be counterintuitive, counterproductive. Um, so maybe give our listeners a, a greater idea of what regenerative agriculture really includes, uh, you know, when we talk about rewilding and even the use of perhaps sanctuary animals, that there's a really, it's much broader than the film presented. Is that right? Absolutely. So there's still a lack of a definition of regenerative agriculture, and uh, I would much rather see that towards what the evidence shows is beneficial and what actually regenerates the land, what actually frees up land to be rewilded, because that's what we want with, with agriculture. We want to use the least amount of land possible to sustainably feed the world. And there's no scenario where we're increasing pasture land and increasing the amount of cows grazed. There's no scenario where that makes sense right so it's a matter of what can we do that uses the least amount of land that can be uh, enhancing to uh, to the soil that, that can reduce the impacts of climate change can free up land for rewilding for allowing more wildlife um, and that all indicates that it's a major shift towards plant-based and a major reduction in the amount of animal source foods consumed and just on the note of like biodiversity this was mentioned a few times in the movie and when they talked about biodiversity, they talked about this kind of like human engineered biodiversity in the soil. And it's not the only way you can get that, first of all. Like you get you get very um, diverse amount of soil uh, microorganisms in forest soil as well. So that's just off the bat. That's one way to do that as well. And But when you think of biodiversity, you really think of like a, a biodiverse tropical forest or protected land with uh, a combination of, of large mammals and and, sm and small mammals and a predator kind of prey relationship as well. And they don't talk about that at all. And if we look at kind of what the numbers show in terms of the biodiversity crisis we're in right now, looking back to uh, about 10,000 years ago, there was, you know, 1% humans in terms of biomass compared to 99% wild animals for biomass. Where now we're looking at only 1% of the biomass globally is wild animals. 67% is livestock and 32% wow. is humans. Wow, that doesn't sound very balanced. 
Not at all. So those are messages I was looking for when I watched the movie, and uh, I really didn't know which way they're going to do to to go about the film because I've I've followed their work for a while, and you know some of the stuff they do is great with regards to um, ways to improve the soil, uh, ways to use uh, green manures and cover crops. These are all great science backed uh, methods of farming better. Um, but I didn't realize that a huge part of the movie would be to do with holistic grazing, Alan Savory, uh, someone named Gabe, Gabe Brown, and, and just this, this belief that we need cows, uh, on pasture out of feedlots. And don't worry, you don't need to reduce your animal source foods consumptions. If you're going to buy, uh, anything from, uh, in terms of beef by pasture raised, like it actually said this. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised as well watching the film that it was so blatant. And I mean, pair that with, you know, local, there are uh, recent A&W commercials that have been trying to be crazy about the grass-fed beef. It really seems to be a topic that's been sort of co-opted by uh, big ag and, and big corporations too, which really just... Uh, adds to the concern about the credibility of the claims to begin with. Um, another concern that I, I've heard a lot of people having about the film, keep in mind, I've heard the film was created uh, several years ago. And so the filmmakers are already thinking of ways to re- re- redo it or improve it. Uh, what about your what are your thoughts on the lack of diversity in the film? Um, there was a lack of attention and paid to indigenous land practices, indigenous wildlife, like you suggested. Uh, and that seems to be a growing concern for the film uh, as well. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it, it was disgusting, really. Like there should have been like, how do you go all the way to to Africa, which I think one of the celebrities did and only meet with Alan Savory, um, a white rancher in you know, South Africa who has a history of colonialism like this is just troubling on so many levels. And you could have met with so many different people in in Africa that are doing agroforestry there that are that are right. doing different types of farming to use cover crops and, and green manures and composting systems and you know these are messages that we need to get out there and to your to your point about in indigenous farming of course there's all that, that varies so extensively in, in the different forms of indigenous farming but one thing that history tells us about farming is we couldn't really transport manure all around the world like we could today mm, mm-hmm. so they had to rely on things like nitrogen fixing lentils and and uh, doing polycrops and doing different styles of planting to ensure that they're feeding the soil through a combination of different plants that they're growing um, and one of one good example is like the um, the Mesoamerican indigenous uh, groups in Mexico, uh, they fed what was probably like one of the largest populations um, at the time through basically various forms of of polycropping. And what they did is they would they would grow um, huge amounts of plants, not have much livestock input at all. And they would basically do that for a number of like maybe five, six years. Then they let the, the land rest for a couple of years. And just letting the land rest would help it regenerate on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a method that is still used in different ways today, but very well, very well is, is a good way to do it. Interesting. And when it comes to uh, indigenous wildlife populations, I, I also found it interesting in the film when they were discussing um, uh, buffalo and how they went from talking about the benefits of buffalo on the land and then that's when they suddenly made the switch to cows. That was their segue, like as if like as if the audience is just going to say, oh yeah, this mass-produced, domesticated, post-colonial animal is for sure the same thing as the buffalo. That makes perfect sense. What were your thoughts on that? We've talked about this before. Like it's yeah. like wild buffalo and wild bison historically um, grazing in a predator-prey relationship throughout a lot of North America is nothing like domesticated cattle today there's so many different things that are that are different between them and to be fair there's there's even studies that are showing the amount of ruminants we had at the time were still impacting the climate but it was just a different situation we had like a buffer that allowed for a certain amount of uh methane emissions from ruminants at that time where today we just don't because there's there's so many issues with climate change but if you're looking at kind of what happens to the soil in the difference between the two with with wild buffalo of course it's a predator prey relationship you're going to have wolves in the area too you're going to have other animals that will uh benefit from 
from different animals that, that die in the wild like that, right? Where with, mm-hmm. with domesticated cattle, you're removing all the biomass and, you know, turning it into food for people. So this in no way benefits the land, doesn't benefit the soil in that way. So you're comparing just two completely different things. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing that, that came to mind when I saw that was you're, you're comparing buffalo and bison to a certain area of land. But as you know, all over North America, east to west, there's cattle grazing in you know every state, every, every province, everywhere. And there's many areas historically that buffalo and bison didn't even touch. Right. So it's just different. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't really say that one applies to the other, even if they were remotely the same animal. Uh, and what about the idea of carbon? You know, that's that seems to be, you know, the, the hottest topic right now. And this idea that, you know, for people who don't understand someone like me, who's not like you, who doesn't understand uh, the science behind it so much, when we hear about the ability of cattle to draw carbon into the soil and how important that is, um, th- this has really become sort of a buzz term. What are, there, what are the other ways w- that we could be drawing carbon into the soil that don't rely on cattle? One of the biggest studies was from 2020 this year. It was in the journal The Lancet, and it basically mm-hmm. said restoring natural vegetation such as forest is currently the best option at scale for removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, the livestock go. sector have largely displaced natural carbon sinks, continues to occupy much of the land that must be restored. So... Um, this is just one thing there. So in terms of like actual cattle, like they say, of course, you can store carbon in the soil in this way. And I know they worked at this movie for a long time, like maybe seven, eight years. And I don't know how you work on this movie for that amount of time and not see any science um, brought your way that shows (laughs) that any carbon that is sequestered in especially farmland soils is time limited and easily reversible. So they were acting like you kind of store carbon in the soil and it's there indefinitely for a long period of time. And especially on pasture land, we're just, it's, it's obviously shown many, many times that that's just not the case. You're going to have some more longer term storage in forests, in, in the actual trees and the biomass, but also in the soil of the forest. That's where you're going to get longer term storage. And that's a big reason why we're showing that forests are the best way to sequester carbon and the best for biodiversity. So it's just like a, um, a kind of like twisted way of communicating a message. And they did it in a way that, you know, they, they had some, some truths in there too. They had a lot of good things in there mixed with these, these major exaggerations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this idea that cows can actually be carbon neutral, like as if, and I, and I mean, again, for sort of a layperson like me, I'm thinking, well, what about methane, <laughs> right? How come there was no real talk about about the methane issue, which is really how cows came to be, unfortunately, vilified to begin with, uh, as we know, they're actually just victims of, of a villainous system instead. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the methane issue and how that was pretty much ignored. I don't think it was mentioned once in the movie. I don't think they, right? they literally mentioned methane once in the movie. And um, just for perspective, so animal agriculture as a whole, they contribute about 35 to 40% of all methane emissions. And methane compared to CO2 is, it's a shorter lived gas. So it doesn't last in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. It lasts only about 10 to 20 years. But during that time, it's 84 times as strong as CO2. So, wow. so it's, it's something that is a major concern and it's not just from animal agriculture, like things like uh, fracking is a major source of, of methane as well. Um, but the good thing about it being short lived is if we address it, if we lower the amount of methane emitted, which for agriculture, the best way to do that is reducing the amount of cattle farmed, then you're going to see the, the effects in the atmosphere quicker. And if you see the effects in the atmosphere quicker, then you're going to have less chance of things like a um, like a permafrost melting or mm. kind of like irreversible effects of climate change that are, are bound to happen over the next couple of decades, where if you address only CO2, which I hope no one gets from this, that you shouldn't address CO2, you should address CO2 from fossil fuels in every way possible as well. But if you only address CO2 and not methane, then anything you do today won't even be seen for about 100 years because that's how long what we're emitting today for CO2 stays in the atmosphere. Wow. So, wow. so the methane thing is, you know, should have been mentioned throughout the movie. And 
you know, there'll be certain, like, there's a lot of greenwashing within this movement in terms of like carbon neutral beef. And right. there, there's some ways that's being said that's just completely, you know, nonsense. Like there's, there's the only way you could have carbon neutral beef is if you have a whole lot of trees and forests in that area and very little cattle actually farmed. Mm-hmm. So if you only have a few and, you know, part, a big part of your land is, is forest or it's like an agroforestry type situation, then yeah, it's, it's, it is possible in that sense. So I'm not going to say it's not possible, but that's nobody there is claiming carbon neutral beef that are doing this. They're claiming it when it's like this holistic grazing style, mm-hmm. style beef. Well, and if you were going to have uh, agroforestry focusing more on forest and, and minimal amounts of cattle or livestock, that would be the whole premise of the reducing your meat intake. That's that's how that would be put into practice. And there's no talk of this reduction of of meat or animal product intake, which really seems to be at the core of the solution. So what does the solution look like to you uh, in terms of regenerative agriculture or, or just uh, climate change in general when it comes to food production? What What does it all include for you? I mean, in terms of agriculture, it's a it's a major shift towards uh, plant based, and it's not just asking the consumer to do that. It's helping farmers transition to to more sustainable forms of farming. It's it's awareness. It's you know decreasing subsidies to to damaging uh, forms of farming like this. Um, it looks a lot like so someone in the film was was Paul Hawken and he's from a group called Project Drawdown. They have a book called um, uh, Drawdown that looked at all different solutions to climate change. And his words in the movie were very um, uh, deceiving because the, the things he said are not actually what he stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, he stands for a myriad of solutions to addressing climate change because there is really no silver bullets. It's many, many right. solutions. And in his ranking of solutions, uh, like a, a shift to plant-based, he called it a plant-rich rich diet, uh, was number one or number three, depending on which list you look at of his, like number one or number three best solutions. Because not only is this going to reduce emissions of your, your food, but it's also going to free up tons and tons of land to allow to rewild, allow to turn back into forests. So when he was talking about regenerative agriculture, like this is something that he has in the book too, but it's much further down the list. And, you know, if they would have mentioned his part about that, but also said that, you know, a plant rich diet was a higher one, then okay, that would have made more sense. And I probably wouldn't even be doing any, you know, articles or talk on it because it would have been more in line with the science. It would have been more in line with what it shows is needed. Um, But they definitely twisted a lot of his words. And he was probably one of the only, you know, good credible experts actually interviewed in the movie but they really twisted his his words and and i don't blame one person particularly like you know they cut documentaries in in any which way whichever way the producer really wants it to show but um but yeah it's it's a shame because you can look up his work you can look up his book and there's there's a lot of evidence behind you know him saying there's a need for plant plant rich diets well, thank you so much for that clarification and, and for uh, talking through this with all of us. I'm sure uh, many of our listeners have watched the documentary and have had a lot of these same questions and concerns. Um, if anybody wants to learn far more than we've discussed today, I suggest listening to the Plant Proof podcast where uh, he and the host, what's the host's names again? Simon Hill. Simon Hill, right. You guys did a really great job. Um, and I also do a little bit of a recap for Planet Friendly News if you'd rather read through some of the points. Um, uh, you guys talk so much about really important things beyond the scope of what we've done today. And uh, I think there's a lot to be learned about regenerative agriculture and cows and the role they play on our planet. So thank you so much for this, uh, Nicholas Carter, for joining us on the Pond Order podcast. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Camille. So that was great. And now we move on to our final portion of the show, Heroes and Zeros. <laughs> Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. You did and it. I'm excited for our honorees today. Yes, so our hero, do we do heroes first or zeros first, Camille? Remind me of this, oh, the way this We kind of mix it up, but let's do heroes first because okay, the hero is pretty cool. I like this one. So um, this we, this past week, I uh, published an article in the Globe and Mail uh, regarding Canada's horse meat trade, um, the work of activists who have been uh, working so hard over the last few years to try and expose it. Uh, it's been a difficult thing to expose to the public, but thankfully our hero uh, this time is Jan Arden, 
Lynn, Canadian sweetheart and now um, comedy star. Uh, she has really <laughs> taken this up as a cause. Uh, she's gone live on Instagram. She's um, attended protests outside of the Calgary airport or no, the Edmonton airport. I think it was. That's where they shipped the horses from to expose speci- specifically the live export of horses from Canada to Japan. These horses endure so much um, pain and suffering on these long haul flights. Uh, some of them arriving injured or dead. Uh, and she's really taken it upon herself to put a voice to this problem. And she's got a lot of media attention and has allowed me to write this column for the Global Mail that got a lot of traction. And we're hoping that enough public outrage will help end this trade in Canada. So thank you, Jan Arden. Yeah, and that's so important, just drawing more attention to it, because nothing changes unless politicians feel the pressure from multiple people. And to do that, you need publicity for a cause. And I just love this quote that she gave you in the in the Globe. She says, I have a voice, I have a public presence, and I can't take the cruelty. This is not the Alberta I knew. And she finishes off by saying that if they get enough heat about it, the government will have to do something. And that's totally right. Like that is the theory well, of and social the, and change. That's what and happened she's on in, it. That's what happened in the U.S., right? It was because of activist pressure that essentially uh, helped get the, the, the slaughter of horses banned in the U.S. And it was because slaughterhouses could no longer get licensed. Um, and I think actually a few were burned down. Um, and it was it all started with activist pressure. And to have someone like Jan Arden take this on as a cause really bolstered activists ability to get their message out to the public yeah she's the real deal so thank you jan arden for being awesome and for being our hero this episode yay now for every hero there's a zero and this is a story that has made a lot of people very angry on twitter when i posted it jess it's a story in the narwhal well let me just say first of all that the the, the zero is the bc government because it's funding a wolf eradication mm. program to protect the profits of animal farmers just disgusting so basically they're paying they're they're funding the bc cattlemen's association which then pays trappers more than half a million dollars um in let's see in the last few years to kill nearly 700 wolves in just over four years Uh, in this program that's apparently designed to, quote, reduce livestock predation. So basically the way this works is uh, if a farmer loses a cow or a sheep, they can apply for money to get trappers to go kill that entire pack of wolves. Um, So it's pretty like it's it's pretty take no prisoners. And frankly, it's it's pretty awful. Well, and also in the article, they talk about um, the certification process for who gets to determine whether these um, livestock animals were actually killed by a, a quote predator in the area uh, like the certification is like a one-day course and anybody they, they think they said there's over 800 people or something who have the right and ability to determine this and then to call on uh, trappers or hunters to come kill all of these wolves like it just seems like such such an important thing to determine and it's pretty much given to anybody who wants to be able to figure it out. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's interesting that the article says that the BC Conservation Officer Service used to handle public complaints about predators like bears or cougars and livestock, but it handed over uh, wolf and coyote livestock predation issues to the BC Cattlemen's Association Ugh. in 2016. How is that so, not again, a conflict of interest? Classic. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I know. I know. How is, yeah. It raises a lot of questions, but it's just one of those classic situations that the government loves to do, which is just give industry the authority to do what it wants to do itself. Um, interestingly, as well, this this report, so it covers January 1st, 2016 to March 31st, 2019. Uh uh, 1,293 livestock animals were killed, injured, harassed by wild predators. So honestly, like... I don't want to see any animal any any animal harmed. Although of course that's what happens on the farm is they all ultimately die. But it's not that many it's not that many animals, right, that we're talking about here compared to killing about six hundred wolves. Yeah, let's like weigh out the risk versus reward here. But I mean the thing is is that wolves don't make anybody any money, whereas the livestock every head is worth some dollar amount. Um, so you could see why this happens. Because we're, we're dealing with people yeah. who think that, that animals are property one way or another. And also, can we talk about the 81 non-target animals that were found in traps in one month in March 2019? Like, that's 
Bears, cougars, foxes, badgers, lynx, bobcats, deer, raccoons, eagles, and even nine domestic dogs were found in these traps. Like, that's a big issue in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's been connecting with people increasingly in recent years is just the number of like people's companion animals who get caught in these traps. Obviously, it's a tragedy when any animal dies in such a cruel, awful way. Um, but when people see that these traps are, are really that indiscriminate, mm-hmm. that they're targeting everyone who's out there, I think that they're rapidly losing public support for this kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, they almost make a joke in the article. You can kind of hear a laugh behind it saying that one guy caught the same bear three times. Like, this this doesn't sound like a very smart system. (laughs) No, no. And then, so we're talking about wolf predation and and the response, which is to kill all the wolves. But then if you want to talk about another waste of federal and provincial funding, uh, BC ranchers apparently received compensation for animals lost to predators in uh, the tune of more than $900,000 in government funding from January 2016 to March 2020. Like, how is it that this industry benefits from these special protections? Um, You know, like, I don't see this happening in all kinds of other sectors where, oh, they experience some sort of financial loss. In other sectors, that's just the cost of doing business. But here, the government loves to step in and just hand over checks to these guys. Yeah, BC government, you are the zero. Boo, Boo. not a fan. There's a BC election going on right now, folks. So if you're offended by this, you know what I'm going to say. Call or email the candidates. Go to an online debate in your riding. Ask questions about this. Good point. All right, Jess. Well, I think that's our episode for this week. It's been a pleasure joining all of you. Yes. And we'll see you again very soon. Thanks for this, Camille. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!